Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, it's Manveen. Today and tomorrow, I'm handing over to my colleague, the Times and Sunday Times writer, Matthew Side. He's been given an exclusive look inside one of the most secretive organisations in the country, the intelligence agency, GCHQ. Today, he interviews its director, Sir Jeremy Fleming, and tomorrow, we'll be hearing what it's like to work inside the GCHQ nerve centre in Cheltenham. Over to Matthew. As this terrible war in Ukraine rages on, the critical importance of trustworthy information becomes ever more stark. Now, the head of one of the UK's most important intelligence agencies has reiterated how information is being misused by the Russians. This week, the Russian MOD stated publicly that they will drastically reduce combat operations around Kyiv and, and a city in the north. It looked like they had been forced to make a significant change. But then they proceeded to launch attacks in both those places. Mixed messages or deliberate misinformation. Sir Jeremy Fleming, the director of GCHQ, has made an extraordinary intervention in the information war surrounding the conflict. We've seen Russian soldiers, short of weapons and morale, refusing to carry out orders, sabotaging their own equipment, and even accidentally shooting down their own aircraft. But who is the man overseeing the work of the members of staff carrying out highly classified work? We are here to illuminate the threats to our, our national security. In the information space, if that involves a hostile state or a um, criminal group, then we will go after that. We'll try and disrupt. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Matthew Side. Today, inside GCHQ, a meeting with the director. Last week, Sir Jeremy Fleming's speech at the Australian National University's National Security College made headlines when he revealed the extent to which Western intelligence believes that there's been a breakdown of communication between the front lines in Ukraine and the Kremlin. Before he left for his trip, I sat down with him in his office in the GCHQ Donut in Cheltenham. We discussed the invasion, as well as the threats from Russia and China, and how work in the security services has changed over the course of a 30-year career, and his fight against misinformation. Hello, Matt. Hello, Jeremy. Great to see you. Very good to see you. Welcome to our headquarters. I'm Jeremy Fleming, the director of GCHQ. Jeremy, I think we're all seeing the dangers and the contrast between the freer flow of information in Western societies and the control, the central control of information in 
in Russia and in Moscow. I mean, this is a debate that goes back to Athenian democracy and some of the benefits that come from dissent and odd ideas that can sometimes turn out to break the consensus and allow society to move on. What worries me about free speech in an age of big tech platforms is the level of polarization, the growing mistrust of state institutions and of each other, it's always good to put oneself in the shoes of one's rivals. I think in Beijing and Moscow, they feel that social trust is in retreat in the West, despite free speech, and that free speech's value is being diminished because when people say things with which we disagree, we just assume they're untrustworthy or suspect in some way. Free speech is leading to greater polarisation in randomised control trials. This is a big challenge, would you agree, for the West? And Perhaps you can place in the context of that the role that GCHQ plays in trying to rebut misinformation when injected by foreign actors. Well, these are big questions, aren't they? But I think as we see what's happening in the world play out at the moment, that it's obvious that the the information space, if you like, the uh, the conflict of information and the competition that comes from control of data is a much more important thing. We've seen those trends accelerate over the past uh, few years as technology becomes more ubiquitous in our lives, as these, some of these apps that you're referring to become in everyone's pocket, on everyone's device, on, on everyone's computer. And so I think it's right to think about it. I would argue that the view that you suggested some autocratic states might have us, of us, you know, trust being in retreat is, I mean, that can definitely be argued. And uh, I think if you were to go back to Athenian times, some of these, some of these trends have been there throughout civilization. I think the risk is that technology exacerbates the highs and the lows around all of that. It certainly allows the promulgation of ideas and information, the truth as much as it does misinformation. And I hold on to the fact that technology is largely a force for good in the world. It connects us in a different way. It allows us to live our lives in a very different and hopefully a much more fruitful way. So I'm still on the, you know, the upside of this is worth uh, hanging on to. The role of GCHQ in amongst all of this, of course, we are, you'll be pleased to know, we're not truth police. We are not uh, controlling information uh, here. Our role is very specific. We are here to illuminate the threats to our national security. And in the information space, if that involves a hostile state or a um, criminal group or um, serious um, paedophiles trying to exploit the information space in a way, then we will go after that. We'll collect intelligence on it. Uh, We'll compete in cyberspace and we'll try and disrupt. But we're definitely not in the business of deciding what is truth and what isn't. We're not in that, you know, freedom of, of speech space that your question was, was inferring. It'd be interesting in your reflection on this, but if you go back in time, free speech was disseminated through word of mouth. Today, it's disseminated by profit-making algorithms that tend to amplify the sensationalistic and sometimes the untrue. Given the complexity of the world, it's quite difficult for any given individual in the busy life to assess the truth value of a given thing that appears on their feed. I, like you, want to believe in free speech, and I do believe, but do you see that the way that free speech works when information travels through conduits that are not based on truth-telling or veracity, but upon a whole range of other characteristics that feed into the 
profit motive of big tech companies, that there, there is a, a new domain of free speech here. I absolutely accept that. And there is, I think, a moment of reckoning when we decide what values we want built into our technology and, and how we govern and regulate those. There has long been a debate about the extent to which the companies that promulgate information and data have a responsibility, and I believe they do. Exactly how that happens, we will, I think, see some very important debate happening in the UK in the coming months as the uh, online safety bill gets debated in Parliament and beyond. And you know, we're trying to do something which the rest of the world hasn't tried to do yet, which is to try and define the responsibilities of those providers to uh, help their customers understand the origins of the information that they're looking at and take some sort of responsibility for the truth underpinning it. But of course, it's a much bigger issue than that. And as we move to a society that has technology even more to the fore, where we have machine learning and aspects of what one might call artificial intelligence involved in all of our lives, then we have to be really clear. What are the values that are being built into the underpinning algorithms and how do we check that? For GCHQ, that feels very real. We're using machine learning and artificial intelligence. We've been very clear about that. We've actually published our approach to that. We're committed to being transparent in their usage. We've had very detailed and fruitful conversations with our overseers about how that is being used. And I think that debate needs to run much broader. I mean, of course, you'd expect an intelligence organisation to hold itself to a higher standard. I'd hoped you would. But companies are using artificial intelligence and machine learning all over the place. And uh, I think the regulatory environment has really got to gather speed around all of this. At the core of everything we do, we think about necessity and proportionality. So as we look at a new area of technology, then we think about how is it that we can make sure that we are exercising our powers with those concepts at the heart, i.e. we're only doing the things that we have to do, governed by law, and that we're doing them to minimise the intrusion where we have to intrude. You've alluded to it already, but do you have a... Something to say about the online harms bill in, in terms of security? Well, GCHQ has been involved in working closely with the departments on the policy side in informing the makeup of the bill. And, and that's because this sort of legislation, it needs to have an understanding of technology built into it if it's to be relevant. So our role has been to explain the art of the possible, what we think the big tech firms are able to do to protect their uh, customers but also to be very clear on the, uh, the implications and the ramifications for broader security. I welcome the debate around the online safety bill. I think we're trying to do something which is world leading here. And I think it's a debate that needs to happen in parliament and with the public about how these areas of technology and uh, social media are, are regulated in the future. What do you think are the biggest strategic challenges facing the West today? Of course, if you'd asked me the question six months ago, I think I would have been able to answer with more clarity than many people feel now, given what we're seeing in Ukraine. But the reality is that despite everything we've seen in Ukraine, I think the, the challenges remain very familiar to us. That's firstly that geopolitically we face a, an increasingly important and strong China. And China is shaping the the world's economy, it's shaping the rules of the road, and it's exerting its powers. And I think that despite what we're seeing in Russia, then the real geopolitical challenge for us comes from China. 
But that said, and as actually the government set out in the integrated review, Russia poses us a very chronic threat. And of course, what we've seen is uh, that that threat can manifest itself in a way which is bringing conflict and war to Europe for the first time in our lifetimes. Just distinguishing between China and Russia, you say it's nevertheless a, I don't know if you particularly use this word, but a threat, it's a challenge for us. In what sense? If any of us are any in doubt about the extent to which Russia poses a threat, then the events of the last couple of months, I think, have, have firmly dispelled that. And of course, we have a country that economically is very small, but where it wields economic power, particularly around hydrocarbons, it has great influence. And where it chooses to spend its money, which is disproportionately on weapons and on its uh, military and on its uh, nuclear arsenal, then it, it is in the shape of uh, Putin's government. It is set up in a way which poses us a threat. And of course it is and has decades of investing in its, its military. It's a very technologically sophisticated military with a range of uh, weapons that uh, not only span conventional warfare, but uh, go into the nuclear fields. And as we've seen in their the various conflicts that they've been involved in over the last few years gets into areas which are beyond the pale from the West perspective. Its use of chemical weapons, its projection of power, its use of assassinations, including, of course, here in, in the United Kingdom. And so you have a country which plays by different rules, and therefore it poses a, th a threat which uh, we have to take uh, seriously. And in the way in which the West, and in fact most of the world, has responded to the Ukrainian crisis, I think there is a, a moment when the rest of the world is saying, look, you cannot play by these rules, and if you do, you'll pay a price. And this government is saying that when you use your power in that way, then we will make sure you fail. The term that's been used a lot recently is escalation. We want Putin to pay a price, but we don't want the price to be so high that he resorts to some higher level of warfare. So one price that could have been paid by Putin is the no-fly zone that would have made military conquest more difficult. And there was fear in Western governments when Putin uh, announced that there would be a consequence of that, of a kind that uh, goes beyond anything that the West has seen in history. How does one make a calculation of the right level of cost to prevent escalation? And if the cost is too low, what is the risk that Putin will bank what he has and moves on to the next country? Well, this is the conundrum that we're all struggling with at the moment. And it, ultimately, I'm really clear that this will end up in a diplomatic solution. The parties have to come round the table. We have to agree a peace that is fair for the Ukrainians in particular, and it is one that fully involves them in their solution. Uh, yes, there is a lot of conversation about President Putin's regime paying a price, and I'd, I'd argue that they are already doing so in the way in which the Western world has come together, the imposition of uh, sanctions, the international outcry, quite frankly, about his actions. And I think that the difficult line that we're trying to walk here is, is yes, about escalation and uh, de-escalation, but it's also about the impact on the Russian people. And this government is very clear, and, and most Western governments are very clear, that this isn't about the Russian people, it's about the way in which President Putin is leading them, lying to them, and misleading them in the, the background and the reasons for this conflict. Russian doctrine, in its use of its military, has escalation at its core, and it, it's very well known that it 
escalates more quickly than Western doctrine uh, does. And so we have to take that seriously. And actually, I think President Putin and the Russian regime have been quite clear so far in their signaling around escalation. And the West have been equally clear too. There are ways in which we will call out activities. There are uh, responses that the West will bring. But no one is interested in making this a conflict between Russia and NATO. It can't be there. This is about Putin having overstepped the mark in Ukraine. The only thing that occasionally jumps into my mind is a certain type of guilt, that because we don't want to make it too difficult for Putin, leading to escalation, we're equipping the Ukrainians as much as we can, but therefore potentially increasing the level of death and, and destruction. We're giving, equipping them to the point where they can sort of resist, but not do it so well that Russia feel that they might move on to invade Russia, which is one of Putin's paranoid fears. These moral choices are difficult, I suppose, is a point that I make. These strategic choices have big moral consequences. And it's a conflict of values and information and ideas, although it is the military conflict that is causing such humanitarian suffering at the moment. And uh, if I was to segue to that theme, then, uh, of course, we're seeing a real clash of values. It's not just in the context of this conflict, but it's the clash between democracy and autocracy. It's the clash between uh, information and misinformation, the, the, the truth and lies, if you like. It's the clash between uh, a unity of a particular type of regime and the global commons. It's a clash between the value of life and complete disregard for life. And those sorts of clashes are the things that ultimately are playing out in this conflict. And I guess if you're a state that is thinking about which side of the conflict you ought to be on, then I think you need to reflect very deeply on those sorts of clashes and which side of the argument you want to be on. And you mentioned that the real competition in the long term is with China. What's your assessment of how that has affected the geometry of that conflict? Well, I think it's very disappointing that China has so far failed to condemn the war. And that's because China tends to see its position in the world in counterpoint to the United States. And at the moment, it's obviously making a, a calculation about how it positions itself in the conflict. But what we've already seen, of course, is, is Russia turning towards China. And you'll have seen the United States warn China about the uh, extent to which it gets involved in the supply of arms to the conflict. And I've no doubt that there are very serious conversations both in Russia and China about the ways in which the cooperation uh, will go in the months and years ahead. My personal view is that it's pushing Russia closer to China and that we'll see that play out in a number of ways, which means that China is in effect choosing sides on, on all of this and uh, will, like many aspects of this conflict, you know, start to shape geopolitics and the technical environment, supply of hydrocarbons and the economy for years to come. But ultimately, it's about where China goes next that is the big strategic thing here, because it is so big economically. And perhaps one might say that while China might benefit from a relationship with Russia, particularly with Russia very dependent on China, given the sanctions that are currently in play, I think it's been alarmed by the solidarity that has arisen in Western nations as a consequence of the invasion on sanctions and otherwise, a solidarity in the West that has been lacking for a long time. I think from China's point of view, we've been divided and ruled. Russia would perhaps say the same thing too for, for too long, choosing national self-interest above the values of the 
wider Western community. Do you see it in those terms? And how long do you think the solidarity can last before we start saying, oh, no, 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 I want to buy more gas from Russia again and I need to sell cars over there and we want that dirty money flowing into London? All of which, in my view, fundamentally undermined our long-term interests. I think it's definitely the case that what President Putin was trying to avoid has been accelerated by the conflict. And uh, I do believe that there is a high degree of unity in the West and a reminder of why it's important we stand together. I think that unity looks very strong now and I think you can see in the way that the politics is moving all over the Western world, but particularly in Europe, that this isn't something which is going to disappear overnight. Of course, if I was to bring it closer to home and bring it back to what we do in GCHQ, then we're a a global intelligence um, agency, one of very few. And we only succeed because we have friends and partnerships with countries all, all over the world. One of the UK's most important partnerships is the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance with Australia, Canada, New Zealand and the United States. The Five Eyes is central and it's built on over 75 years of partnership and it's an incredible alliance that is generations strong and and makes a difference and keeps each other safe every day. But each of the, the Five Eyes has a range of partners beyond the Five Eyes, and that's definitely the case for GCHQ and for the United Kingdom. And those partnerships and the friendships that we have globally are the things that we need to nurture now and to make sure that we're standing together. Has any of this, any of the international collaboration on security been affected by Brexit? No, it hasn't. No, in fact, I would say today that our relationships with our European colleagues are stronger than they were than at the point of the Brexit vote. You said earlier that much depends on what China does next. How would you map out the alternative courses China might take and how it will affect the world and GCHQ's role in it? China is, like the rest of the world, adjusting to a post or a uh, late stages of the pandemic uh, situation. It has suffered during COVID in the same way as, as every country has in the world and its economy has has suffered less because its chosen way of dealing with the pandemic has meant that they've largely been able to insulate themselves. But at some point, they they emerge into the broader world again. And it's pretty clear to me that no one has an interest in a completely isolated China. We can't close our eyes and ears to its rise. And there are areas and geopolitically important areas where we need to work with China, not least climate change. So a China, I think, to be successful in what it wants to achieve has to connect to the rest of the world. And we, with our eyes open, need to find a way of connecting uh, with them. I think China has a, has a choice on how it seeks to do that. And it's pretty clear to me that if it decides to double down a path which sees itself in opposition to the US, where it's projecting values which are not the same as the Western world, then its task that it faces to make sure that its economy sustains and that it continues the the journey out of poverty of the last couple of decades is just going to be that much harder. For us in the West, we have a a real moment in time when uh, we can engage and try and help China engage on terms which are acceptable to us both. 
or when we sort of turn a blind eye to what it wants to do in its part of the world. And I really don't think that's a choice we have to engage. The worst case scenario is that it becomes isolated and feels that its partnerships are only you know, of the Russian ilk. The best case scenario is that it has properly moderated and valued relationships with the world that benefit us all economically and socially. I mean, but China is never going to be like the West, we know that. And, you know, none of us should be naive about that. What do you think the Chinese Communist Party, which has successfully sustained power in the world's most populous country for quite some time, what do you think its biggest fear is? Do you think that it's worth, when we talk about China, we distinguish between the Chinese people and the Chinese Communist Party and between the Russian state and the Russian people? I've been very careful in our conversation so far in calling out President Putin's regime rather than the Russian people. And, and I think that is very, very important because ultimately and what we're seeing in Russia is a, a leader who is lying to his public and a, a public who don't, I think, really understand what is happening in Ukraine. I think to a degree that works in the um, Chinese space too. But to be clear, there is, there's no sense here of calling for regime change. You know, that's uh, for those countries and for those people to decide their future ultimately. And I think the, the best thing that we can do is to make sure we're as uh, connected as possible within our values and that we're clear, we're clear if you like, what our offer is. You know, what, what is it that the West stands for? And what is it that we're trying to protect? And of course, back on the protect side and the security side and, and what our core business is too, then that's something that we think really hard about here. Our view on it, I think, has, has changed or accelerated because of the pandemic. What we all understand as nations now about where our vulnerabilities lie, you know, where our true resilience comes from. Who'd have thought two years ago that the supply of face masks was going to be such an issue and we would have such dependence on it? And in the technology space, who'd have thought that the control over the next generation of the manufacturer of computer chips was going to be such an issue? These sorts of things, quite apart from electricity, water, oil, you know, the things that form our historical, critical national infrastructure, this is a very different space. And so as we in GCHQ try and advise the government and our partners about our future security, and as we think about the role of technology and cybersecurity, then it's built on this different understanding of what resilience really is. Coming up, how has working in security and intelligence changed over the course of Sir Jeremy's career? But first... I'm Louise Callahan, a foreign correspondent for The Sunday Times. I'm currently in Ukraine, reporting on the Russian invasion. My colleagues and I report from war zones to shed light on what is really happening on the ground. But I couldn't do that without the help of the readers and listeners of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Can I ask you how intelligence has changed? You've been in the intelligence community for quite a while. I, you're probably a bit younger than me, but I got into journalism before there were computers. I, I used to fax my stuff in. Give us a sense of the arc of how intelligence has changed, the nuts and bolts of intelligence over your professional lifetime. Yeah, which is close on 30 years now. I'm <laughs> rather surprised to, uh, to, to uh, remember. It definitely has changed. And I think back to those early days of my career, which at that time were in MI5. And at that point, we were still dealing with a threat from Irish terrorists who phoned in their bomb warnings from public phone boxes. You may recall the sense of the 10p terrorism campaign. Go on, remind me, was that, was that... Irish terrorists were making, were making uh, phone, phone calls yeah, from the phone boxes and the saying thing. there'll be a bomb at. Yeah, 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 and yeah. so uh, it was largely a hoax campaign, but some of them weren't, and that's where the jeopardy came from. And so if you, if you go from a sense of, okay, well, those were pretty unsophisticated from a communications uh, perspective, but, and the investigation behind them was pretty basic, some basic telephone intercepts, some uh, on-the-ground um, intelligence collection, um, surveillance, signals, intel- the whole gamut. If you fast-forward to now, then we're operating in a big data world in the same way as you are in your, in your professional life, uh, where the internet is now available to you know, the majority of the world's population, not all, but the majority of the world's population, where I think over half the world's population have some sort of smart device that they can access. The technology that people are using in their everyday lives provides opportunities for us to investigate and collect intelligence, properly authorised, legally overseen, in all the ways that I hope you would uh, imagine, but also increases the complexity of what we do, the scale of the information that we have to um, go after, and some of the uh, challenges we then have about making the the best use of that. I mean, it feels to me as though if I was to crystallise all that, I'd just say that the ubiquity of technology has really changed the game for us. Has that meant that in your recruiting, I know that, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on diversity, the mix of minds, which is a phrase that I love, by the way, better than the one that I used in my book on this very topic. But are you hiring more people now with quantitative backgrounds, you know, PhDs in mathematics and other things of that kind, along with the array of other people, compared to 20 years ago? Is this a more cerebral environment than MI5 in 1990? <laughs> That's a loaded question. I'm going to say no to that particular question. But, but look, you're, the phrase you referred to was the right mix of minds. And we have a saying here which originally it was a way of us focusing on diversity but we said with the right mix of minds anything is possible when the brilliant team here came up with that phrase i i remember thinking oh that is that really going to capture what we're here to do and it stood the test of time i really like it because it it allows us to say regardless of your background regardless of your skill set whether you're from the north of the country or from here in Gloucestershire where we are today regardless of your ethnic background and regardless of how you think you know when we bring together those mix of minds we can do seemingly impossible things incredible things and the more I've been here the more I've understood that that actually is an ethos that has underpinned all of our history 
when you think back to uh, the efforts of one of my predecessors in the run-up to the World War II, the way in which they went after, quote, professorial minds then, you know, that was a mix of minds issue. When you look at 75% of people in Bletchley Park were women, that's a mix of minds issue, and, and, and. But the skill sets that we need here, yes, they are changing. But I would argue that the skill sets that people have in civilian life and they're gaining through their educational experience are changing too. And so we get people whose general approach to technology is just much more sophisticated and savvy because that's what happens in their private lives. We still go after the best mathematicians and I think we're probably the biggest employer of mathematicians. We're definitely the country's biggest employer of uh, linguists. We want people who have a background in computer science and cybersecurity, but equally we want people with the aptitude who can lead and uh, inspire and train and motivate and communicate. And uh, so there's a very broad church here. I think the thing for us as leaders is to make sure that we are bequeathing to our successors the mix of minds which is going to enable the, the mission to be successful tomorrow as well as it is today. In terms of the mission of keeping the country safe, what, what keeps you awake at night? What's the risk that you think that we need to be more cognizant of? I quite often get asked that question. And uh, I actually sleep pretty well. <laughs> so I do manage to switch off. I think you have to in this business. But the, the thing that I think is the real long-term challenge is in that skills space. As a nation, how are we equipping ourselves to be successful a decade and two decades into the future? And for GCHQ, the question is, how are we making sure that we're attracting the right people who genuinely reflect the country we're here to serve so that we can be successful next time round? And I, I, I mean, of course, I worry about the way in which national security threats manifest themselves. And I, I worry about our ability to deliver the things we're charged with at the moment. But I, it's those longer term capability and skills issues which I think are, are the most, most serious. And this is because if we don't have the right array of skills, we won't grow very fast and we'll be outflanked. And there's a relationship between economic and military power. So absolutely. You know, I always say prosperous and secure. You know, the security is there for a reason. We need to be prosperous as a, the nation. And it's about prosperity as well as it's about security. To what extent do you think GCHQ can play a role in repairing some of the damage that's been done to democracy. I mean, it's quite interesting that after we arrived in a unipolar order, after the end of the Cold War, there was a small lag and then democracies went into retreat. According to Freedom House, only 20% of the world's population live in a fully democratic society. You talked about truth. You said you're not in the business of truth particularly, but you also talked about values. Give us a sense of how you can contribute to the repair and, and functioning of this great system that is slightly decaying at the moment? I think the reality is that we're a bit player in that particular question. But if I was to answer that question from GCHQ's perspective, then I would say that uh, we do have a, a responsibility to make sure that our licence to operate is alive and well, that the public understand what we do, that there's transparency around the extraordinary work that we're asked to do and that levels of uh, public trust that we're doing the right things for the right reasons, properly overseen, legally authorised or in the right place. And I, I mean, after all, we are asked to do some of the most extraordinary things and at its core, lots of what we do is uh, deeply intrusive. And so I think we can only do that 
if we've earned the trust of the of the people we're here to serve. I mean, the good seventy six percent public trust. The good news is it's extraordinary, and so when you talk about trust reducing in the Western world, then I think that that's very differentiated depending on where you are. You know, the trust in government institutions in the US is different to Europe, is different to the UK, for example. And the trust in intelligence agencies is certainly different all over the world. And depending on where you are, intelligence agencies are are not those that tritely, I'm going to say now, adhere to the values which, you know, I might hold dear. But in the UK, we for a whole range of reasons, a lot of them, I hope, really earned, some of them from uh, myth and uh, cinematography and, and, and. The intelligence agencies are really trusted here. And I think what we, what we need to do is make sure that we continue to earn that trust. People that I've spoken to today, a lot of them have used the word mission yes. and purpose. How would you uh, characterize the mission and purpose of GCHQ <laughs> to a new recruit and you're, you want this person to work for you? What would you say to them? I'm really glad you've got that sense. When I'm welcoming new people to the organization, I. I say that I I hope they're here for two reasons. The the first is that it meets the Monday morning test of what do you do when you get up on a Monday morning? Do you think you're doing something which makes a difference? That sense of having a purpose in GCHQ. Of course, lots of walks of life have purpose and uh, we definitely don't have the monopoly of it. But this sense of we're here to keep the country safe gives people that great sense of um, purpose. And the, the second test is are you serving with, working with people whose values you share? That sense that if you have a real purpose in what you do and you are doing it with people whose values align with yours, then you're going to be challenged and interested and you're going to feel like you're making a difference. And so I I hope that every day people are thinking that here. This is an organisation that, of course, is 102 years old. And so it, it has bags of history that shows that that mission and purpose are here. And yes, it can be hard, and in crisis it can be really tough, but you can be sustained by that mission and purpose. My visit to GCHQ involved more than just meeting the director. Tomorrow, I'll be taking you through the security barriers of this top-secret compound, and I'll be meeting some of the young analysts and the different people who make this organisation work. So we need to break the code. How on earth do you do that? The way that uh, my dyslexia presents itself is I'm usually quite good at spotting patterns. It's a complex business, signals intelligence. You need very, very highly astute, intelligent, but also pragmatic people who are passionate about their role in national security. In the middle of a hot conflict, you know, understanding what might have happened in a cyberspace is probably not as important. But I think what we'll find is there was a lot more that happened than we realised at the time. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Matthew Side, and my guest, Director of GCHQ, Sir Jeremy Fleming. You can read more about my visit to GCHQ at thetimes.co.uk. The producer was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by Callum Perrin. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, please send an email to us, storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Hold up. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 